building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. So Steve Berger, pastor of Grace Chapel in Franklin, Tennessee. Thanks for flying all the way out to the Springs here. Absolutely. It's our honor. And, uh, and you and I have been friends for a couple of years now. We were introduced by Michelle Burkez, mutual mm-hmm. friend. And I remember her saying, you got to meet my friend Steve Berger. He's got like the church in Nashville and he knows all the, the big artists, Michael W. Smith and Jeremy Camp and Danny Gokey. And I remember saying to her, I don't want to meet another cool pastor. I don't. I don't need the skinny jeans, cool pastor. And then, then we met, and you realized I wasn't cool. (laughs) This guy's not cool at all. Yes, he's my kind of guy. That's right. (laughs) And um, and and I had to go speak at something. So we met. We had a nice time. You came. I I learned later you weren't supposed to go to the thing, but after our conversation, you decided to come. And then afterwards, you prayed. And I, you know, I, I say this to people all the time. The people of God who love the Lord, who are saints, who are sanctified, can pray. And you prayed the roof off of that church. Mm. I was so overcome with the power of your prayer, how much you knew the Lord, that I'm like, I, I got I to gotta be friends with this guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been good the last couple of years, hasn't it? Um, we've been thrilled to to watch God develop our friendship and and to be able to work together on PK and all that. It's, it's really a special thing for Sarah and I, both. So how, I mean, seriously, how do you have such a successful church with a lot of the cool kids go to your church yeah. and you preach the word? I yeah. mean, you do not back down. If you go on Grace Chapel's website and just download some of Steve Berger's uh, sermons, they, especially the ones you have on repentance, and you preach the, the paint off the walls at the Promise Keepers event on repentance I mean, I didn't really have anything to repent for, and I still wanted to drop to my knees with you and just start. I mean, something had to be wrong. You had stuff to repent for. You just didn't realize <laughs> I just, it. Yeah. I, and I went and asked my wife, and she gave me a list. That's yeah. right. <laughs> it, it all really boils down to commitment. And, and what I mean by commitment is, what am I committed to? Who am I committed to? If I'm committed to Christ and his kingdom, then it doesn't matter who comes or who doesn't come. I'm not going to be a respecter of persons. I'm not going to pander to the crowd. Uh, I made a decision 30 years ago when I was asked to be a pastor that I was going to preach the word. I was going to speak the truth in love. I was going to face sensitive, controversial issues head on and just let God's word speak for itself. And then whoever comes, great. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to build my own platform I'm not here to name drop. I'm not here to cater to famous people. I'm here to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, period. So it's a little bit like Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you because I can name drop for you and I won't keep going. But major people in the Trump administration have been in your church and developed relationships with you because they've so appreciated your unwavering commitment to preaching every word of the Word of God without compromise. Yeah, and I, I think they appreciate, too, the fact that 
that I'm not trying to build my platform by name dropping and taking selfies with them. And, right. you know, it's, there's that confidentiality there that, that uh, is so foreign to today's social media uh, networking and all that stuff that they like when they just see somebody who's preaching the word and loving them as just people. Yeah. And I talk about it all the time. Who are you trying to impress? Right. And I mean, Reading Ezekiel, what God is just going off against the priests of Israel and how they're not preaching his word. You read in Malachi where God says, I will spread animal dung. And the Hebrew word for animal dung is a word that we wouldn't use on this podcast. Right. But God uses over the faces of the priests because they will not teach the word of God to my people. Yep. I, how many pe- pastors do we see? And I, this is not to put down pastors, but yep. they've got, well, you have a great line, right? We've tried skinny jeans and fog machines. How about if we try prayer and repentance? Right. You know? We see this entertainment aspect, and you are unconcerned with entertaining people. That doesn't mean you're unconcerned with excellence, because yeah. your music, your worship is, of course, in Nashville, it's easy to have. Like yeah. You throw a, a, a rock, and you're going to hit a great guitar somewhere. But you're not trying to entertain people. You're trying to worship the Lord, and you're just inviting people to, hey, come on, be a part of this. Right. Yeah, that's it. And it, again, it all gets back to what's your commitment? Is it, is it to Christ and his kingdom, or is it to you and your platform? And uh, far too many pastors today are trying to be cool. They're trying to build their own platform. They're trying to get people in their church or, or name drop and associate with famous people to make something of themselves. And there's nothing about that that's gospel. There's nothing about that. It is so totally contrary to the nature of Jesus and the call uh, upon a shepherd's life I don't know how guys give themselves to that, mm. but it gets celebrated and and recognized and rewarded, so it just keeps them on that path. We're, we're moving into a day and a time, Ken, where if pastors do not start preaching the, the totality of God's word, right? What did Paul say when he was leaving Ephesus? I have not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. If pastors don't start preaching the whole counsel of God's word, we are going to see more and more people fall away with the difficult times that we're coming to. Because what we've won people to is our own personality rather than the savior of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to undergird them when they're facing trial and tribulation that's coming on this land. It's not going to work. It's just, it's, it's, it's not sufficient because it was never meant to be sufficient. God, his word, and the power of the Holy Spirit is what is sufficient, period. Anything else is smoke and mirrors. And if you think about it, that's, that's what Paul says. I mean, Paul apparently had not much of a personality and he wasn't much of a speaker. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, when he's not there, people are like Paul, I mean, come on, when he shows up, he's this little nothing and, and he has, he's not a good speaker. And Paul revels in that and says, my power comes from my weakness. And yeah. man, if more pastors would see it that way, not, not just pastors, men of God, women of God yeah. who want to serve him, um, if we would realize it's all the Lord and the more emptied out we are, the more the Holy Spirit can fill us. We've got to, we've got to get back to those verses that either uh, aren't underlined in our Bibles, <laughs> uh, which are things like, if anyone desires to come after me, Right. It starts with the desire, but then it's got to turn into d- to discipline, right? If anyone des- desires to come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. This is the words of Jesus. So it starts with desire, great. But if your desire doesn't turn into discipline and ultimately death, dying to yourself, you're not having a relationship with Jesus. You're playing religious games. We've created a church with a message that's contrary to what Jesus preached. We're going to get back to that, but not everybody's going to get back to that because too many people are addicted to to shallow religious pablum Mm. by skinny jeans, fog machines, and laser light shows that draw a crowd, but they don't build a church. We want to build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it happens by us having a desire to follow him, denying ourselves, and picking up our cross daily and dying for his cause. So, Steve, if we... If we say a prayer and we're saved, we're in the club, yeah. and we get to go to heaven no matter what, then why should we care? Shouldn't well, we just kind of do whatever we want for the rest of our lives because we're going to go to heaven and it's a bummer for all those other people? Yeah, that's part of the weakness that's being preached and taught right now. Ultimately, the validity of your prayer is only going to be known by the vitality of your lifestyle. And so if your prayer is real, genuine, and and um, and produces salvation, your lifestyle is going to bear the fruits of that. So anybody who says, hey, I prayed a prayer and so I've got my fire insurance and I'm good, I believe with my entire being, they're going to have a rude awakening when they give an answer for a fruitless, Christless, missionless life. Their, their life, their commitment to Jesus is only going to be evidenced by a life that produces fruit for the kingdom of God. Anything else is a lie. And in this life too, I mean, you see so many Christians who live a powerless, joyless life yeah. and uh, they don't know why. And of course, those pastors who aren't teaching them God's word are going to be held accountable because yeah. their people don't know because they haven't heard the word. Although I turn it around on a lot of men and I say, well, you can read. Yep. And you can read the Bible for yourself. You don't need someone to spoon feed it for you. Yeah. But if you've got a pastor who's not who's not encouraging and even demanding that that the men and women of his church get in the word to study to show yourself approved, someone who needs not be ashamed, but rightly knows how to divide the word of truth. If you've got a pastor who's not telling people that, then they just think, hey, I did what he said. I prayed the prayer. Yeah. So I guess I'm good. I think there's a lot of pastors that are going to be surprised what they have to give an answer to uh, on that great day. I That's a part of the fear of the Lord that I'm walking in myself as a pastor. What am I telling people? Is, is it in line with the whole counsel of God's word? Is it building the church or is it just drawing people to me so I can have more famous people and build a bigger platform for me? We've got to start asking ourselves. These are very serious times where very serious questions have to start being asked. Yeah. Again, having an audience of one, who is it that I'm trying to impress? There you go. So I said when I wanted to build the board of promise keepers, um, I wanted men who walk with limps, men who have had the crap kicked out of them by the world, men who don't come from an easy religion because there's a humility and a softness and a grace and a strength that comes from men who've been broken. And when you look at the board of promise keepers, it's a bunch of broken men that that are godly. You went through a breaking that I don't know if I could handle. Um, you went through, I think, the worst trauma a, 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 a man or woman can go through. And uh, tell, us, tell us about that. Yeah, so 
on um, August 11th, 2009, uh, my wife Sarah and I, we got the, the phone call that nobody wants to get. And that was that our um, son, our 18-year-old son, he was three days from his 19th birthday, uh, had been in a single car accident, a fatal, fatal wreck. And um, we, we went to the hospital and being a pastor for all those years, you know, I know what those phone calls mean, mm -hmm. what they say, what they don't say, and then what that ultimately means. So I knew we were in trouble based on what was being said to me on the phone. We got to the hospital and um, they gave us zero hope that our son would pull out of it. And um, so then literally uh, three days later on his 19th birthday, we released him to heaven. We honored his desire to be an organ donor and um, five people's lives were saved immediately. Uh, 77 lives benefited from his gift and uh, who knows how many hundreds, maybe thousands of people have come to Christ as a result of it. And um, so it's, listen, it's it's the most painful, unnatural thing that a parent can go through. You're not supposed to bury your kids. And I know that uh, on that anniversary, if I can call it that, yeah. every year, that's a, a traumatic thing for you and Sarah. Yeah, it is. It's it's bittersweet, you know. I uh, I don't say this lightly. Sarah and I have spoken and written extensively on this. We counsel couples from around the country um, about these things, but it's bittersweet. It's bitter because we love and miss our son. Um, you know, Josiah is a just a fantastic young man, and um, so that's the bitter part of it. The sweet part of it is he's in heaven right now. And he's experiencing things that eclipse worldly pleasure mm -hmm. um, so much so that um, I got to be happy for him. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we don't, th these are some of these verses we don't talk much about either because we don't have need for it many times. But Jesus said, if you loved me, you would rejoice that I say to you, I'm going back to my father. Mm. So if I love my son, there's got to be a degree of rejoicing that he's with the Father right now, that he's in heaven, that he's not having to deal with the stuff that we're having to deal with. One of the most profound moments for me personally, and Sarah's had plenty of these herself, but um, after Josiah went to heaven, I was um, in the bottom of my shower just sitting on the floor, the water's running down on me, crying, crying out to God, devastated. And if God ever spoke to me in my life, Ken, he spoke to me in the bottom of that shower. Mm. And I was rehearsing. I was, it was my complaint. And I was complaining to the Lord saying everything a father would say, what about my son's marriage? What about grandchildren? What about all of that? Like We miss out on all of that. And if I ever heard God, he said to me, Steve, I have more than made up for all of those things. And it penetrated my heart in such a way where I knew that the things that I was considering were so essential to, to life and blessing and, and, and wholeness that those things paled 
in comparison to what my son was experiencing that moment. And it, it changed everything. Didn't mean that all the heartache went away, but what it did mean was it gave us eternal perspective to start looking not at what my son didn't have, but what he was experiencing. The sufferings of this present time, Paul said, aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. And so our suffering is Josiah's glory. And for that, we rejoice. I had a Christian man for whom I have great respect tell me one night uh, he died in his sleep. He was just uh, in his sleep and suddenly he was above his body and he felt his soul come out and he looked down and he saw his body. He saw his wife sleeping next to him and he said he felt this free this freedom, this uh, awesomeness. And all of a sudden he heard a voice yell really loudly, it's not his time yet. And he was grabbed and slammed back into his body violently. Yeah. And he said that when he got back into his, his body, he was just grossed out and just hated, like he felt like he was back in a prison. Like he'd been cheated. He'd been cheated. Yeah. And that is a different angle towards kind of what you're saying. Of yeah. God's kind of telling all of us, you guys, you're stuck in these gross, decaying bodies. Yeah. And to be released is the greatest glory, if you know me. Yeah. It's, um, you know, we heard the saying for so long that someone is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. <laughs> we, we have a different take on that now in that we're finding that the church is so earthly minded that they're not much heavenly good. Mm. And so we're That's working good. passionately to get people to be heavenly minded, to have an eternal perspective, to know and understand the glory of heaven. You know, Randy Alcorn, a mutual friend of ours, had uh, written his book on heaven years ago and made the really staggering point that the vast majority of seminaries don't even have classes um, on heaven. So we're producing pastors and preachers who are being untaught mm -hmm. about our eternal home and destination. Is there any wonder why then the people of God sitting in the pews are clueless about heaven? We've got a cartoon theology. Mm -hmm. we, we, we even look at you know what we would just commonly call death um, with a very defeatist mindset. You know, part of our the revolution that Sarah and I have gone through, our family and our church family, beyond people we've talked to, is we're helping people to understand the importance of our language. Think about this for a minute, Ken. Jesus, in his famous um, passage, the famous passage, John chapter 11, uh, his friend Lazarus has, has uh, departed, um, and, um, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he says those famous words in John 11, 25, and 26. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, uh, though he die, yet shall he live. And it's the only time then, Ken, in all of Scripture, I think Jesus took a pause and then said something just a little more detailed. Because then in verse 26, he says, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he said, do you believe this? Mm. So Jesus himself is saying that for someone who loves him and follows him, someone who knows him for real, that death itself doesn't even have the final word over their life. Jesus himself says they don't really die. And then he said, do you believe this? 
Do you believe this? Because what we believe about what we call death changes everything. If we see death as being having the final word over our lives as Christians, and we talk about Christians who have died and they're dead, how hopeless is that? It's actually contrary to what Jesus taught. Jesus lets us know the word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 tells us for the believer, we get swallowed by life itself. Swallowed by life. It's a cool visual. Oh my gosh. So so you will never ever hear Sarah and I, our family, even our church family, you won't hear us talking about Christians being dead or having died because it's contrary to the word of God. And I can attest to that because I remember making a major foobar with you in your car Yeah, when you said, well, I have four kids. And I said, well, where where are the kids I live? You said, well, three live in Nashville. And so where's the other one live? And you said, in heaven. I'm like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) You remember that? Uh, I totally remember. Because we're trying to help people to, to our vocab, our, 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 our ideas about heaven need to change. Our, our vocabulary mm. about heaven needs to change. And so we talk about people going to heaven. I don't talk about people dying if, if they're followers of Jesus ever. I don't talk about my son who, my, yeah, my son's dead. I'd never say that. I don't even like saying it right here in that context. I never say that. And, you know, years ago now, because it's been 11 years, you know, I can get this sense from some people, even believers, they look at me a little skeptically and they're like, dude, are you like kind of in denial? And I, and I like to jokingly say, I'm not in denial. I'm in the Bible because <laughs> the Bible, the Bible teaches me that my son is alive. The Bible teaches me that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We see this on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm-hmm. Jesus is getting ready to go into the most suffering time of his life. And what happens? Moses and Elijah show up. They had both been in heaven, Moses for 1,500 years, Elijah for 600 years. But they show up in the midst of a cloud, interestingly enough, and they begin to minister to Jesus about what was going to happen to him as he proceeded to Jerusalem. So people in heaven being alive, active, aware not being dead, not being isolated on some cloud plucking a harp in a white robe. That, that's not heaven, that's hell, <laughs> right? So we've got to change how we look at heaven, what we say about it, what we say about the people who are there. It's got to inflame and enliven us to live passionate lives now because heaven's forever and it matters what we do now. Now is practice for what we're going to do for all of eternity. Get it right now. Start practicing now. You know, Steve, I think what's important, a lot of people are listening to this and they're in trauma or they're still dealing with trauma. And that trauma may have been losing someone they love. It may have been um, their spouse left them or uh, they lost their job or whatever, various levels of trauma. I think it's important that people remember that you didn't get this way instantly, that you've had 11 years from this to grow. And and I want to ask a couple of questions that people may be wondering. One may be, was there a period of being angry at God? Mm-hmm. Was there a period where your faith was challenged and you were like, hey, I left Southern California and I went out to what used to be a little redneck town nobody ever heard of and started a church because you told me to, yeah. and this is how you repay me? I mean, did you have yeah. those thoughts? 
I want to preface my answer first by saying, uh, I will tell you that I am a profoundly imperfect man, that I need to confess my sin and repent of my sin. There's a lot of stuff that I've gotten wrong in my life as a follower of Jesus. Let me say that first. Now let me answer your question. I can honestly tell you that my wife or I, neither one of us, ever got mad at God. Mm-hmm. Now, we had decades of passionately loving him and following him and seeing his hand in our life for years and years and years and years. It might be more difficult for someone who didn't have that depth of relationship with the Lord to um, to have that level of peace and lack of, of anger. We know that people get angry at God. They, they think it's not fair. They don't deserve it. Which And again, listen, I've experienced this, so I don't say any of this lightly, mm-hmm. but there's something in the body of Christ that your, your tragedy is, is horrible, and I feel bad about it, but there's something in our mind that says, that'll never happen to me. Mm-hmm. And then when it happens to me, we think the world's falling apart. Well, why didn't the world fall apart when it happened to you? What was it that we missed in our understanding that, hey, none of us are exempt? We're promised tribulation in this world. We live in a broken, fallen world. These things happen. And so we've got to start preparing our own selves by getting to know and love Jesus, by diving into the word, by letting his word strengthen us. We've got to get to the point where we know Jesus that regardless of what comes our way, we love and trust him. We have to get to that place because most of us are going to suffer some pretty tough things. And in that moment, if we haven't prepared ourselves for it, it can be really tough. The moment to try to prepare for your moment of suffering is not the moment of suffering. Mm. It's the days and the weeks and the months and the years prior to it. Are you building a foundation with Christ so that no matter what comes your way, you can stand and still love and trust him? You might not like it. You might not enjoy it. You might have to go through some process. But at the end of the day, the thing that is most important is you keeping your faith in Christ through it all. You know, I remember um, when I was younger, I'd lifted weights all the time and I was in really good shape because of, you know, what I did for a living and all that. And I remember someone saying to me, well, I, I don't know why I would ever need to push 300 pounds off my chest, you know, making fun of me for bench pressing all the time and whatnot. And then I was in a major accident. Uh, I was hit by a jet ski, a drunk guy on a jet ski hit me and broke all these ribs. And the doctor basically told me that the reason you're not dead is because you had so much muscle density yeah. that it kept all your organs together. So I ruptured my liver and my lung and my kidney. But a month later, I was fine back because all that training had prepared me for the moment of trauma. There you go. And what we see in life is that there are patterns as the way God has created the universe. And we learn through pain. You know, we, we prepare ourselves for that moment. And so because you love Christ, because you poured yourself out, because all the things you were saying way earlier, you died to yourself. You learned to pick up your cross daily and follow him. When your moment of testing and trauma came and when Sarah's came, you were ready and prepared to go through it 
and to be a blessing for others rather than to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. And now what we've been able to do for the last 11 years is by pouring into people who are suffering in the moment and helping them get eternal perspective and watching Jesus rescue them from the pit of despair and defeat, then we're equipping a whole new generation, a whole new group of people that are going out with the same message that Jesus poured into us, which is the gospel, right? I mean, this is this is what that what Paul said, right? That he come that God comforts us so that we can then comfort others with the same comfort that we received. So Sarah and I, our family, we went through our tragedy. We received comfort from the God of all comfort, and we're passing that on and helping other people get comforted. And then what do they do? They pass it on to other people. We've watched this for the last 11 years. Well, you did two funerals for for teenagers who had died. I know one of them was in a car accident a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Two, two young men from our church were both in car accidents within four days of each other. Jeez. And yeah. yet, the, you know, those parents know that that pastor who's giving that sermon knows their pain, yep. walked through it with them. Just like the Bible says in Hebrews that we, uh, we have a high priest who knows our pain. He learned obedience to his father through suffering, it says. So Jesus knows exactly what we've all gone through yep. and that kind of loss. So he's not just a God that's nameless and faceless, but someone who has shared in our very pain and sufferings. Three weeks after our um, accident happened, we got a phone call from a, a very well-known person, and um, he had suffered a, a similar trauma in his life. And he said, Steve, I just let me give you a heads up uh, of some things to expect. It was very nice. And he said, one of the things we noticed was that people bombarded us with books. Mm. And he said... These books were written by people who haven't experienced what we've experienced. And um, he said they were too long. They were too theological. They they just didn't meet the need. He said, to be honest, he said, most of them ended up in our pond. We mm. threw them in the trash. We threw them in the pond. We burned them in the fire pit. Mm. And so with that fresh in our mind, when we wrote the first book um, called Have Heart, Bridging the Gulf Between Heaven and Earth, um, we we started off by just saying, number one, whoever's reading this, we do know what you're experiencing right now. We, we've experienced it. Number two, uh, we made it bite size so that so that people in tr- profound grief could get through it and we and we filled it with enough hope that it was going to encourage them. And so that little book now for the last 10 years is, gone around the world and helped people risk rescue people. I mean, in the truest sense, we've heard from people regularly, this book saved our lives. But again, where can they get that book? Yeah, they can go um, to gracechapel.net, the church, um, the church website. They can go to haveheart.net, um, which is part of the ministry that we've we've built as a result of this. Go there. It's on Amazon as well. But the book is called Have Heart, Bridging the Gulf Between Heaven and Earth. And then um, Sarah just finished a book. I'm excited to say um, we'll, it'll be out here hopefully fairly soon. But it's specifically geared toward mothers um, who have their children in heaven. And so she's done a great job with that. And I'm sure it'll be a blessing as well. And so if people are 
need something to read, they're hearing this and they're really trying to deal with that, they can read your book. Now, there's a million Grace Chapels. I'm impressed you got gracechapel.net, by the way. That was We've great. had it for a long time, yeah. <laughs> but make sure you go to gracechapel.net. And if you're still not sure and you just need to do a search, look for Grace Chapel, Franklin, Tennessee, mm-hmm. which is a, a the cool suburb of Nashville. Right. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. This is Ken Harrison talking to Steve Berger, pastor of Grace Chapel in Franklin, Tennessee. And we're just talking about how Steve has gone through some serious trauma in his life, which has helped him to become such a humble and godly man and really one of the great preachers of today. From a scriptural standpoint, if people are listening to you now, I would not put most people, almost nobody would I put on the spot like this, but I know you can answer the question because you are a man of the word. The pressure's on. The pressure's on, man. <laughs> Where should, where should they open their Bible to? They're saying, man, I'm hearing this, but I really wanted to get, to get into God's word, but I don't know it that well. Where, where do they turn to, to get some real godly meat on this subject? Yeah, so uh, you know, just a few things, and I've mentioned them already. In order to grieve with hope or to mourn with hope, we have to go to the word, which is what you said. But even Paul in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Hmm. Now, now think about this. He didn't say we don't mourn or grieve. He just said we don't do it like people who have no hope. So, where? How do we mourn with hope? Where do we? Where do we um, find that hope? It's in the scriptures. And so, I, I want to look. Number one, I want to look and see what Jesus said about death. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. It doesn't have the final word over us. And as a follower of Jesus, I go from life to life, not from life to death. Jesus himself said in John 11, 25 and 26, followers, my followers don't die. And then he said, do you believe this? Because again, what we believe determines how we're going to not just live, but grieve as well. We have to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, that we're, our mortal bodies are actually swallowed by immortality, swallowed by life itself. Give that a verse, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, 4. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, just a few verses later, what does Paul say there? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent means to to immigrate, to move, uh, and to be present. It means to be at one's ho- in one's homeland. And so to be absent from our body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, this, this is another one of these vocabulary things where people say, you know, and I get what they mean, and it's a little bit of a play on words, but when people say, I'm so sorry that you lost your son, and I try to graciously say, well, you don't lose something 
when you know where it is. Mm-hmm. See, I know where my son is. The scripture tells me he's in the presence of the Lord. So he's not lost. I know exactly where he is. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I know exactly where he is. So it's all of these verses and many other that we share in the book. This pops into my mind. Uh, the, the, the psalmist says two different things. He says, number one, God is near the brokenhearted. And then he goes on in another psalm and says that he heals the brokenhearted. So I expect God in the midst of my grief and pain, in the midst of my brokenness, to be near to me, knowing he'll never leave me or forsake me as much as I might feel that way under trauma. I expect him to be near me with his presence. I expect him to heal my broken heart. I expect him to come and bring life and and work the process of healing in me. I'm not saying any of this stuff happens overnight, but God is in the midst of that, making all things new, continuing to be good to us, continuing to comfort us in all kinds of different ways. He's the God of all comfort. Doesn't doesn't just mean that he's he's all comfort. It means he comforts us in all kinds of different ways. So it's it's again, it's getting into the word, believing the word, getting eternal perspective, and letting God heal us and give us hope. It's important people remember too. I mean, the Bible's written by the Holy Spirit, but it's written through men. Yep. And Paul had suffered great loss. We know that Paul had been married because you couldn't be a Pharisee unless you were married. But then we know in First Corinthians that he was now single. So we don't know if his wife died or if she left him when he became a Christian. But he had suffered the loss of a wife in some way, shape, or form. The psalm, the Psalms, when you, David wrote most of them, David had had a child die at birth as a judgment on his sin. Yeah. He had had a daughter be raped. He had, had another son be killed by one of his other brothers. So David had suffered extreme heartache as he's writing the Psalms. And so not only did the Holy Spirit write Scripture, but he wrote scripture through broken men who had suffered trauma and they understood. And I, you know, another thing on what you're saying is that sometimes Christians can say the worst things. Oh my gosh. The patronizingly <laughs> religious garbage, right? Yeah. And one of the things they, they say is, well, you know, you shouldn't mourn because you know someone's in heaven. Well, I get to mourn the fact that they're not here. Yeah. I, I, I'm happy for them on the one hand that they're in heaven, but I'm also bummed that they're not with me. Right. And that's okay to feel bad that they're not with me. Yeah. Again, that's what Paul says. He didn't say we don't mourn. He just said we don't mourn like those who have no hope. You know, Ken, one of the things that that we've learned and communicate with people all the time too is when someone goes through grief, someone you love goes through grief, there's there's something, and I believe it comes from a good place most of the time, where we want to rescue them. We want to say the thing mm-hmm. that's going to fix it and make it all better. So I want to say to every one of our listeners, that thing doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist. I just say shut up. Well, just shut up and listen. So, so let me give you a Bible verse for that, actually, <laughs> because it's good advice. When Job went through what he went through, it said when his friends showed up and saw his grief, they remained silent for seven days. So here's what we tell people. Job's friends only got in trouble when they started talking. Point out the truth. Shut up and practice the ministry of presence. Just be there for somebody. Cook them a meal, cut their grass, vacuum their carpet, <laughs> clean their house. Just be present. Don't put yourself under the pressure of saying the thing that's going to solve it because it doesn't exist. And whatever you do, 
do not share Romans 8.28 in those immediate <laughs> days because you might get a fist or a high heel somewhere you might not like it because it's it's inappropriate in those first days. Romans 8.28, all things will work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I believe Romans 8.28. I believe it for my life. But it needs to be a word spoken in due season. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. Let's take this on the same subject, but in a different angle. I was witnessing to somebody last week, actually, some famous television personality called, and we were talking, and I asked him if he knew Christ, and he said no. And, uh, you know, he's one of the people on the political right who's working hard to get Donald Trump elected and, and uh, thought he thought we were going to have a political conversation. And my thought, my thing was, do you know Jesus? Right. And he said, no. I said, why not? He hemmed and hawed. He didn't really know why. I said, do you believe you're a sinner? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? Yes. So what's keeping you then from giving your life to Jesus? He said, I just haven't had the time. <laughs> and I said, well, it takes about five seconds, but I, you know, yeah. honestly you have to process. Right. And I said, I really, I'm going to pray for you that you take the time. I said, I would strongly encourage you to read John chapter three tonight. Um, and I'm going to pray for you tonight while you're reading it, that you'll get it. But tomorrow you could be in a car accident and there's not enough lawyers in heaven. God knows. And I'd like to see you in heaven. And he laughed, still hasn't received Christ. You know, it's yeah. been a week and I've been praying for him and I followed up with him and he, he's going to get around to it. Your son said some final words to you and 20 minutes later he was in heaven that's right but he did know christ he he absolutely knew christ and knows christ now and um you know listen i i would say these things as a pastor prior to josiah going to heaven i would tell people at altar calls the scripture says specifically tomorrow is promised to no man we we don't know what's going to Ken, you and I don't know what's going to happen as we drive off together later this afternoon. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen. And as much as people who want to push against that would say, oh, those are scare tactics, they're actually not scare tactics. It's the truth. Right. It's reality. You're not the master of your own destiny. You don't know what's going to happen 5, 10, 15 minutes from now. You've got to be ready to meet Christ at any moment, at any moment. You've got to be ready to stand before him because we're all going to at some point. And so you need to make peace with God immediately. The scripture says today, I mean, it didn't, didn't say tomorrow. It says today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you that you need to repent of your sins, that you need to receive Christ that you need to start serving Christ, do it today. Do it now. Don't put it off because you don't know how many people, God, we shudder to think of this, how many people are going to stand before Jesus and say to him, I was going to do it later. Steve, how does someone get saved? What do they do? So I think the scripture makes it very clear. Let's just go with what Jesus said at first. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said that. Repent. It starts right there. There is no salvation apart from repentance. And what does repentance mean? Repentance means having a change of heart and mind that causes you to change your direction. 
It means I start looking at my life and my sin differently than I ever have before. I start agreeing with God that that the sinful things that I'm doing are actually sinful, that they're not just mistakes, that they're things that separate me from God, Isaiah 59, 2. And so I've got I've to have a change in heart and mind that causes me to have a change in direction. I stop running from Christ, and I start running to Christ. That's a, a good uh, Reader's Digest version of repentance. So I've got to repent. Then Jesus said, and believe in the gospel. Believe isn't just intellectual assent. It's not just agreeing with, but believing the gospel is putting the full weight of your eternal being into the hands of Jesus. You are believing. You are trusting the gospel. You're trusting the good news that Jesus Christ did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that he died on the cross in our place. He took our judgment upon himself as the perfect spotless lamb of God, the greatest sacrifice in the history of the universe that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So we've got to repent. We've got to believe that good news, that God loved us that much, that he did that. Next, we have to receive Christ. There has to be something, a transaction, where we actually say, Jesus, I receive you. I receive you as my Savior. John 1.12, what did he say? The scripture says that he went to his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. You've got to receive Christ. You've got to tell Jesus, Jesus, I want you for myself. I I believe I repent, I believe, and I receive. So if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and, and believe, believe in our heart, we will be saved. First John 1 9. Absolutely. And then I would go, I would add one final fourth thing to that. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. So when I look at what Jesus said, what the scriptures say, it's it's four very crystal clear things. I've got to repent, I've got to believe, I've got to receive, and I've got to confess. There are no closet Christians. Mm. I've got to say to people, my life has to speak to people, I am a follower of Jesus. Now, Steve, when we do that, does God just abandon us, or is there some hope he gives us? <laughs> no, man, he doesn't abandon us at all. Faith faith isn't a destination, it's a journey. So when we enter into that relationship with Jesus, it's the very beginning of an adventure with Christ. That is accompanied by that which Jesus said is the advantage. Our adventure is empowered by the advantage, and the advantage is the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit then comes into our lives, and, and he empowers and emboldens, he gifts us to serve Jesus for the rest of our lives while we're here on earth. You cannot live a successful Christian life apart from the promise and power of the Holy Spirit. You just can't do it. And how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? How yeah. do we? How does the Holy Spirit get a hold of our lives to where there are people listening to this who are new Christians? Yep. There are people who are listening to this who are carnal Christians. And carnal basically means a baby. Yeah. You're immature, and you may have been saved for 20, 30 years, but you're a baby. Yeah. And they look at those people who 
what we were talking about earlier who really know God. Yeah. Those people who are able to go through massive sacrifice and go St. Jerome being barbecued by the Romans face down, singing hymns. And then finally, after 15 minutes, he yells out, I'm done on this side. You can turn me over now. Yeah. And we think, how do we get to that point? How do we get to the point of Mother Teresa and, and, and pouring out our lives? What do we need to do to get to become so godly? It's a daily decision. It's a daily decision of coming before the Lord in prayer by surrendering yourself to him, your life to him, your purpose to him. It's getting to know him on a daily basis by diving into the word of God and letting him speak to you and equip you. It's it's everyday posturing yourself in a place of worship and adoration. It's it's everyday posturing yourself in a place of desperation. Really important word for the Holy Spirit to come upon you with power. Now, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds, so let give me just a second to say something important. The original disciples, when they saw the resurrected Christ, Jesus rose from the dead. They encountered him in John chapter 20. Jesus then, upon their belief in him, that he'd been raised from the dead, Jesus then breathed on them and said, receive my spirit. So there's no question that at the moment of conversion, there is an encounter with the Holy Spirit that happens that seals you as one of God's own. There's no question. Now, here's where this is interesting. Because to those same men, Jesus commanded them. He didn't suggest. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He commanded that they wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father came upon them, which was the power of the Holy Spirit so that they could then go out and fulfill the Great Commission. They had received the Holy Spirit at conversion, but there was another dynamic that needed to happen, and it was so important Jesus commanded. He said, don't go try to do kingdom work until the power of God's Spirit has come upon you. And they waited and prayed and prayed and waited for 10 days. And after 10 days, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They're what we call now the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came with power and authority and signs and wonders and miracles. And he equipped them then to preach the gospel and to go into the whole world. Those same men in Acts chapter 4 are filled again with the Holy Spirit. And as you go through the book of Acts, you see the important role of the Holy Spirit coming upon new converts with power to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's never changed in the kingdom of God. We've got too many people trying to do kingdom work without kingdom power, and it fails every time. We need the power of the Holy Spirit today like we needed him 2,000 years ago. It's Jesus' recipe for kingdom success. That's why he called him the advantage. All right, so Steve, you know, we're talking about salvation, and we talked earlier about how a lot of Christians think they say a prayer, uh, they don't have to worry anything about anything else, they're, they're in the club, and they can do whatever they want. And number one, you, you have identified the fact that they may not be saved. And we see in Matthew 25, many people are going to think they're saved and actually have done big things in God's name, and he's going to say, I didn't know you. That's a terrifying thing. But Christians are going to be judged too. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for the deeds done in the body, whether good or worthless. Mm -hmm. One of the most poignant visuals that I get is at the end of, of Matthew 24, when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes on a long journey. 
And the master, when he comes back and finds that slave serving him, he will reward him and shower him with gifts. And I'm obviously par paraphrasing. Or it's a slave who says, well, my master's away on a long journey and he beats his fellow slaves and he eats with drunkards and parties with drunkards. I tell you the truth, when the master comes back, he will cut that slave into pieces and assign him in a place in the outer darkness with the hypocrites. Jesus there is saying that a Christian has a choice and that choice is going to be they're either going to be found serving the Lord when he returns or they're going to be found beating your fellow slaves in that day would have been like you're beating them to get them to do your work. So you're letting them do your work. You're not doing anything profitable. You're beating them and making them do their work. Help us understand the Christians will be recompensed. Jesus said we're going to be judged by our deeds, clearly not talking about salvation. Yep. What, is that, what does that mean? Yeah, so again, I think this is one of the things that far too many Christians, they're not taught about, and so they don't understand it. Again, this is, hey, I said the prayer, and I'm good for all eternity, and I'll live however I want. Instead of understanding that every follower of Jesus isn't going to have to give an answer for for sin and salvation. Jesus handled that, okay? Our salvation is a settled issue. So judgment on that level has been handled by Jesus. However, the scripture does tell us, you quoted 2 Corinthians 5.10 and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes extensively about it, that we're going to be judged not for salvation, but for reward. And our lives are going to be thrown into the fire. He uses that analogy. And then based on what comes out of the fire, the wood, the hay, and the stubble will get consumed. The worthless, non-kingdom things, those things face judgment and get consumed and they don't produce a reward. But it is the, the gold and the silver and the precious stones, the, the valuable eternal kingdom things, the right things done with the right motive that we actually get rewarded for. And so, yes, the follower of Jesus is going to be judged based on their works. They'll be rewarded on their works. God, God is not slack to forget the good things that we've done for his kingdom. That, see, that's got to fuel us, Ken. Mm -hmm. That's got to motivate us. We're not doing all this stuff for some ogre who's not going to recognize it. Mm. In fact, the scripture tells us of Moses, Moses actually looked to the reward. Moses actually knew, man, I'm going to get rewarded for this, this work that I'm doing. It, it, that's an all right motive. But we've got to understand Christians, we're not going to be judged for our salvation, but we will be judged for our works, and we will be rewarded for those things that were done with the right motive and produced the right result. And I think that's one of the things that's demasculating men so much right now, because there's no better way to demasculate boys than to tell them that everybody wins. Yeah. Because we all know that we won, right? Yeah. We play the soccer game when we're seven, <laughs> and we know exactly who scored which goals and who's better soccer player than the other guy and who won. And when the adults say, oh, no, everybody won. There's a, there's a sense that even at seven years old, like adults are stupid, yeah. right? And in grown men, it's the same thing. There, there's, there's a point to it. There's a gold star. There's something I get. Uh, yeah, God put that in us for a reason. Yeah. And so the idea that I'm just going to get to be in heaven hanging out with Paul and we're going to be in the same stature is ludicrous. Yeah. Paul, who was killed in the name of the Lord and brought back from the dead and, and shipwrecked and cold and hungry and poured out for him. Yeah. And, uh, um, so there is justice in the Lord, and there's this sense that we have a fairness 
And and I I made a release a statement about a, a leader saying one of the reasons why Christians get so judgmental is we don't believe in the justice of God. That somehow when we see a Christian being bad, we need to pound on them because heaven forbid they're going to be in the same heaven as us. How dare they? Yeah. And we forget. No, no, no. We we worship a fair Father yeah. who rewards his children for the deeds that they've done, but also punishes his children, disciplines them yeah. both in this life and in the next if they've lived worthless lives. And that's why Paul says you will suffer loss, right? When when our lives are thrown into that fire of judgment, so to speak, not the fire of hell, but when our lives are thrown into that that burning crucible to see whether it was uh, done in the flesh or in the spirit, yeah, people are going to suffer loss because their lives were were a loss. I was thinking back to what you were talking about a minute ago, you know, about us adopting a mindset where, you know, everybody kind of wins regardless of what you do. Paul didn't have that at all, not only by his lifestyle, but what his words, what did he say? He said, I'm running to win. Paul is running his life to win. And so that's a question we need to ask ourselves right now. How are we running? Are, are we running thinking that, well, we're all going to end up, you know, winning, so to speak? Or are we running? Are we putting forth the discipline and the effort to, to make a winning difference for the kingdom of God? Paul ran to win. I want to run to win. I know you want to run to win. Oh, man. So I love running with you because we're, we're, we're after the same thing. We want to see Jesus glorified in the earth, and we want to see as many people come to Christ as possible. Well, I, I'm running hard because I'm trying to keep up with my wife, you know, because one of the worst verses in the Bible to me is that we won't be married in heaven. Yeah. And, uh, and that means she's going to have a house different than mine, and it's going to be way better. You know, I, I called her. She went to see Franklin Graham at his prayer meeting in Denver, and uh, I asked her how it went. She said, I don't know. What do you mean? She said, well, I went down there, and there was like 40,000 people, and it was so crowded. She goes, I just went down and bought 30 hamburgers at McDonald's and went and fed the homeless. I led three, three homeless to the Lord, though, today, and I'm just going, oh my gosh, my five foot, 310 pound <laughs> wife, you know, out there with the homeless, giving them hamburgers. And I'm thinking, you know, baby, I'm going to have to take like three bus transfers to get to your mansion. But, you know, can I ask you to use your pool when we're in heaven? I'll be the guy, you know, with the little <laughs> towel. Can I, can I just go float in your pool? So no, I mean, but, but we do know that there are rewards and there is a reason to serve the Lord. And we don't, and I, you know, I've talked to legalistic Christians about this who will give me their very pompous, well, I don't care about the rewards. I just, yeah. Really? You know, I loved my dad when I was a kid. And when I served my dad well, which was serving the Lord well, two things occurred. I had closer relationship with my dad. I wanted to make my dad proud. Yeah. The second thing is my dad was more apt to give me rewards and do things, take me up to the mountain and go tubing or whatever. Yeah. Our father in heaven is the same. And yeah. so as we serve him, we have closer relationship with him. He speaks to us more. And he will reward us. And let's not forget that. And I think if we get that, if we start preaching that from the pulpits, besides Justin Franklin, Tennessee, we'll start to get to two things. Number one, we understand we don't need to judge other Christians. They're our daddy's kids. They, we don't judge our brothers and sisters. He'll do it. And the second thing is we don't have to worry because the things we do in the dark when we go and meet and pray to the Lord in secret, our Father who lives in secret will reward us, uh, openly. Jesus says in Matthew 6. He'll openly. reward us openly. So we we don't need to get all tied up in all that stuff, and therefore we can have an audience of one. Therefore, yeah. let's point our thoughts and mind to Christ 
and stop worrying about what the freaking people of this world think. You know? <laughs> I think it's interesting that at least two occasions, while Jesus walked the earth, a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Well pleased. It means that there was obedience and effort, that there were works that caused the Father in heaven to rejoice over the life of his son, to be pleased with it. So like Paul, I want to run to win. And like Jesus, I want to live in a way so much so that the Father might say from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I want, to, I want to stand before him when he says to me, well done, good and faithful servant. A servant is someone who serves and works and labors and runs. Jesus didn't say the Father's going to say, well done, good and faithful couch potato. <laughs> well done, good and faithful pew sitter. Well done, good and faithful servant. A servant is someone who serves his master. And does it in such a way that the master is well pleased with what he produces. Well, I think we tied that up well. I mean, we went from the, the brokenness of the church today and how pastors need to get involved. We talked about what you've gone through and that your faith kept you strong. And then we finished up with the great reward for those who stay diligent, who persevere to the end. And so I'd encourage everybody who listens to this today. Boy, if you're living through trauma, I hope these words were really encouraging. If you're not living through trauma, you will at some point. Be ready, be prepared. Uh, know Jesus Christ. And uh, and gosh, even if you don't know Christ, I think we gave you the one of the best explanations I've heard about how to come to know him. And so, Steve, as we end this right now, if you have a last word you want to give everybody. Jesus is worth it all. You'll never regret loving and serving Jesus. Make him not just your Savior, but your Lord. Surrender your life and will to him. You will never regret it. Give him everything you got. Good stuff. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Ken. Love you. Yeah, ditto. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. Thank you.